I'm Tani Nandini, and this is episode three of the Mala podcast, where extraordinary women retell their stories of survival and reimagine them as sense. I'm a novelist and perfumer living in Brooklyn, New York, and my independent beauty and fragrance house, High Wildflower, sponsors this podcast. We're here to unravel the notion of a bad woman, the Spanish definition of Mala, also known as a garland of flowers in Sanskrit. And in this podcast, it means memory as living art. All the perfumes are available at malapodcast.com. The season centers on a house of formerly incarcerated women in Flushing, Queens. Our guest today is Nikki, a sociology student who hails from Lenox Hill in Manhattan. The first thing I notice is that Nikki's dresser is covered in perfumes. Like her roommates, her personal space is a bright and beautiful haven. Each woman has a room of her own, a place to express all of the creativity and color they've been denied for so many years. Throughout our conversation, the energy of the house permeates the room. Everyone is buzzing with the sounds of Saturday morning. Nikki is the daughter of Greek immigrants. She fell in love with a fellow Greek-American man who admitted his violent past just before their wedding night. They were so deeply in love that she took a chance. But his abuse worsened, and Nikki's life became a nightmare, which led to the traumatic event that would send her to prison for 23 years. According to the Correctional Association of New York, 82% of incarcerated women are survivors of serious sexual and physical abuse before their time in prison. Domestic violence is intimate and terrifying and too often shamed and silenced. When we speak about her abuser, I notice that Nikki often speaks in present tense, a subconscious shift to the immediacy and urgency and danger of that relationship. One of the ways that incarcerated women access perfumes in prison in New York is through the Muslim imams who sell oils to the inmates. Medina, a Brooklyn Bangladeshi-owned institution, sells these fragrance oils, including classics like Egyptian musk, to designer knockoffs to ones with more inventive names like Michelle Obama. Their wares are often sold on sidewalks throughout the boroughs. I've spent many an afternoon inside this shop buying oils for high wildflower and meeting fellow entrepreneurs with their own natural beauty companies or street hawking hustle. These are the interconnections between my community and the New York State prison system that I never knew existed. I wanted the overall feeling of Nikki's perfume to be calm, soft, and serene like she is, to evoke the past and present simultaneously. So I use laurel leaf, a nod to Greece, an academic study, the green notes wafting off her father's clothes after a long day at his flower shop. As a tribute to her favorite perfume as a young woman, Love's Musky Jasmine, I blend Indian Jasmine and aromachemical Jasmalactone to give a milky quality that fades delicately into a long-lasting white musk. Composing the perfume takes several trials before I'm happy with the composition, and this reminds me how each and every note is akin to a choice how our lives are an accumulation of choices and how the wrong one can force us to start over. My name is Nikki and I'm from originally Manhattan, but then I lived in Queens for a while. I was born at Lenox Hill, so I'm a city girl through and through at heart. <laughs> and my dad owned a, a flower shop there. So he used to come home smelling like flowers. <laughs> Did you go to the flower shop all the time growing yeah, up? Yeah, I worked there when he bought it from like 84 to 
Until mm, my arrest, till 93. So did you grow up with fresh flowers in the home? Well, I love the rubrum lilies, the stargazers. I love freesia. Is it the hydrangea? I love those. And Narcissus has a sweet smell. I love those as far as fragrant flowers go. But I love a lot of flowers. And But he smelled, it's really weird, just from cleaning them all the time. The Maybe the green stem, but like the flowers that last the longest, the chrysanthemum family. Like that's what you smelled when he walked in. It's like it was all over his coat. It's like the scent was just on him. Super yeah. fresh and green. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. So that seems to have influenced you in terms of your taste in perfume because yeah. your dresser is covered in yeah. bottles of perfume. So yeah, I love nice smelling stuff. When did you first discover your signature scent as a young woman? As a young woman, I always, you know, like to go in stores and they had the testers, but I always love this. The Love's Musky Jazz. My mom used to wear the Elixir Clinique. I like that. So did you think that the world that you grew up in was one that was full of luxuries or did it feel like very simple at that time? No, my world was very simple. You know, my parents came here as immigrants. So, you know, everything was a struggle. Like my father used to say he built Lenox Hill because he didn't have insurance. So he paid for each of four of us were born into the family. So he paid for each birth. You know, he was just one of those stubborn people. And then when we went, he wanted us in private schools and, you know, occasionally we would get thrown out because the tuition wasn't there on time. You know, the Greek parochial schools, you know, you pay full for the first child, half for the second, and then it's free for the third and everyone after. And sometimes, you know, he had a tendency to gamble and whatever, and he was behind on uh, the tuition and they'd pull us out of class and have us wait in the principal's office and, you know, let us back in when it was paid. I grew up, you know, appreciating the work ethic. Did you feel any kind of shame or guilt or any of that, those kind of feelings? Um, the payment and... Yeah, I mean, you know, once I got older, like it, it started to, you know, my, my mother would feel it. So my mother would talk about it. And that's when it really, otherwise I was, you know, I was young. I was unfazed and, you know, I'd hear the arguments, so. Always about money. He used to do well, but he had gambling and drinking and horses, you know, card playing and all that doesn't jive with raising a family. So, you know, so she used to get in on him about that, but she was good with making do with creating a lot at a very little. She was very good like that. And she used to sew, so she used to like, Side hustle. Side hustle is such a New Yorker mentality. I think I definitely see that in my community. I'm from Bangladesh. A friend inside, Bithi, she was um, Bangladeshi. What was she in for? She never talked about her situation, but... Yeah, and I never really pushed, but... Because it's private. Yeah. Is that something that's kind of understood? Yeah, it is. Like, sometimes you could ask and someone will say, I'd rather not talk about it, and you have to leave it at that. You let it go. Yeah, some people will talk about it. Nowadays, with the internet, you could look anybody up, but back then, you couldn't when we first went in, so you didn't know. But she was very nice. I used to help her with her papers, just grammatically, if she had things down, because she had a very philosophical mind. She liked to analyze stuff, so she wanted to make sure that 
she made her point clear with her writing, her essays. We were in college together. I studied sociology. I also, I got two associate's degrees, one in sociology, one in liberal arts. They were both from inside. Where did your parents immigrate from and like what year did they come to the U.S.? They immigrated from Greece in, I want to say 50, maybe 56 or 58. And was this before like the wave of Greek folks in Astoria and I think it was right around that time. So did you have friends that were in Queens? Uh, I had friends, yeah, they used to come to the school that I went to because I went to a school on 74th between 1st and 2nd. It's a a Greek parochial school. So a lot of them used to come from Queens, even though they have their own Greek parochial school. I think there's like eight of them in New York City. But a lot of people, like if their parent worked in Manhattan, they would just drop the kids off in school. So, And then I had friends that lived in Astoria, so I would go to their houses. You know, it was a huge Greek community in Astoria back then. So what are some of the scents from your childhood? We have your father's flower shop. We yeah. have your first few perfumes, the jasmine musk. My mother's um, cooking. Yes, oh, let's talk about God. some Greek food. <laughs> my um, The Greek cuisine is very intertwined with Middle Eastern cuisines, you know, a lot of with, you know, these a lot of spices and stuff. Her meatballs. You could smell people would stop and, you know, knock on her door and say, what is it that you're cooking? It smells so good. People always wanted to know because you could always smell her cooking outside. Greeks are big on oregano. Her stews, whatever stews she made, you could always smell like the bay leaf. The combination of bay leaf, onion, and and like vinegar. She used to make this stew called Sifada. You could use any kind of meat with it. And I made it here one time and like the place, yeah, lit up. Remember the cooking, like I could I could still smell her meatballs, you know, garlic, things that had the garlic, the oregano, the ol- and frying in olive oil, which is very potent. Onion. You could just the, the combination of those scents. Uh, I wish I could duplicate her meatballs. It's one thing I can't duplicate. I mean, I'm I'm trying, you know, I experiment. Because I used to watch her all the time, but I never wrote anything down. When did you start getting caught up in stuff that made you feel like you were flirting with danger a little bit or... Things were kind of like outside of the family home. Well, you know, as a teenager, you do your experimenting, but nothing major. But my biggest thing was when I got married. And though I didn't see the signs, looking back, there were signs. And um, my husband was abusive. And unfortunately, I did what you should never do. Like, I didn't leave. There weren't protocols in place back then. And um, I wound up in prison for 23 years. What was kind of the thing that drew you to them in the beginning initially? He was Greek-American like myself. You know, we had similar backgrounds. We used to sit and make fun of the Greeks from Greece, you know. We had like a lot in common. We both like rock music. We used to have a, a nice camaraderie, like a nice friendship. I fell in love. He fell in love. I always wanted someone tall. You know, he was tall. I wanted someone dark. He was dark. I fell in love instantly, but there were things that should have clued me in that maybe I should wait. How old were you guys when you fell in love? I was 24, 25, and and he was three years older. What were some of the parts of his personality that you think now, looking back, were warning signs? Well, he had divulged a secret. He said he's only going to say it once. And not, I'm never to ask him about it. So first of all, right there, 
you know, a partner should never tell you that. If you, you should be able to ask anything you want. But apparently he had raped the girl when he was younger. He didn't put it that way, but like she went to leave him and uh, no, she went to him. You know, it was, um, he had taken her virginity. She was pregnant. She was not Greek. So his family wouldn't have accepted her. And she told him we have to get married and he threatened to kill her, you know, beat her up, kill her. So she was scared. She went and told her, her brothers cause she was afraid to tell her parents cause she, they were Catholic. The mother had her put in a home till she had the baby and gave up the baby for adoption. She eventually became a cop. This was a skeleton in her closet. She never wanted to talk about ever again, but apparently her brother's went after him with baseball bats and broke his legs. He told me this the night before our wedding. So right there, I should have been like, wait a minute, like what else is there about you that I don't know? I should have heeded my gut when the, like even the night before my wedding, it's like, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you once. I'm only telling you if someone comes to our door in 20 years from now and says, I'm Gary's daughter, you're not to ever ask me about it again. And, and that's like, boom, 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 boom. You know, that's it, a period, end of story, and it's not up for debate. The next day is the wedding. 400 people are invited. It's like, and I, you know, looking back now, I should have had the guts to just say, huh, hold on a minute. Dude, I don't know you. The nickname for him was Saddam Hussein. And, you know, like you have a pet name for a family member based on a trait. So right there, that's like, a, that should have been another warning sign. How many years were you guys together? We started dating in 86. We weren't together that long because he had had a, a burn accident and he was in the burn center at New York Hospital. So I How used to go burned? there every day. He was a mechanic and he was pouring gas in a carburetor at somebody else's gas station. They called him in to start a car that had a fuel injector system. Mm. And the speculation is, is that while he was holding the styrofoam cup with the gas, he must have jumped as it sparked and must have spilled gas on himself and ignited. So he spent two months in the burn center. He had second and third degree burns, but thank God he was okay. When we would have arguments and his mother would tell me, well, it's the burns, it's the burns. And I would always like internalize things like, you know, don't get mad at him. It's the burns, it's the burns. I would just take in a lot, take in a lot. And then when he fell out with my father, they had um, a huge argument. He didn't want me, even though I worked for my father, he wanted to dictate the hours on the days that he knew my father needed me most when my father was busy. He would call and hang up and threaten to kill me if I'm not home by five. And it was just, my world became chaotic. Were you guys like just completely isolated from your friends and family? Did you feel or yeah, were you in felt- the community and no one knew what was going on? Well, people knew, you know, but that's something people never, never get involved in. All my friends had gone on to college and graduated, but he felt kind of like intimidated by people that had a college education. He had a a tradescraft and nobody ever made him feel that way, but this was his own personal thing. So he didn't want me around like my own friends that I grew up with. He wanted me with the wives of friends of his, which were blue collar um, workers. So his inadequacy or feeling of inadequacy came from feeling ashamed of his class background in some yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, his whole family, they they all got college degrees. You know, he was good with his hands and he became a mechanic, but he just, I don't like your friends. And it, my friends were very nice. 
very, very nice. So it's just like signs like that. As time went on, it's like you feel jail gates coming down. Did he have a specific smell that you kind of recall or that you have in your mind or did you put that away? The oil, the gas station, like the petrol or whatever, Mm because he worked with cars, Mm -hmm. you know. Super chemical. Yeah. Rancid smell. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're in a marriage that completely is oppressing you. It sounds like you're suffocating inside of it. What led to your incarceration? It was a rape that he, I'd called the cops and we, we had had an argument and he hit me. I was bleeding from the mouth. The cops came and his way to make nice because it was around Thanksgiving time and he wouldn't let me, he stayed like my jail guard at home. Wouldn't let me go to work. He didn't want my father to see my busted lip. And his way of making nice was sex, which I didn't want. Sex at that point had become a disgusting act. The same hands that go to caress me feel like knives. I wound up pregnant. Then I went for an abortion. And I'm trying to get away from you. I can't have another baby. And he's just like, just get an abortion, bitch. Like, you know, screw what it does to my body. You know, the doctor had told him and told both of us, but I, you know, I I was still partly under the anesthetic he gave me. Um, No sex for, I believe he told him six weeks. And immediately, like less than a week later, he was trying to have sex and, and I'm trying to buy time. And I just, you know, in my mind, I'm like, let me heal, you know, let me heal. At least to just put up with it. And, um, the morning that I did this, he, when he went to to grab me, I just grabbed his gun. It just like instantly grabbed his gun and, you know, I, I flipped, I, you know, I completely flipped. Yeah. I was overcome. I, I was shocked. I, you know, I, then, and then part of me is like, he's so, such a big man, like nothing hurts him, you know, so powerful. He's a powerhouse. So I remember grabbing the, phone and the cordless phone and running out of the room, shutting the door and calling to see like, is he coming around some corner going to surprise and get me? And I was crazy. In my mind, it's like nothing could kill him. I kept telling this detective, like, how long is this going to take? You know, it's like, you don't understand. I have to be home. I have to have his dinner on the table at five. And it's like, so you don't understand he's going to kill me. The guy's like, "He, he can't kill you. He's already dead. It's like, it was crazy. You know, I remember those stuff stays with me. So. To me, that sounds like a case for self-defense. Like what happened? I guess the way they, they put it, because he was laying like on his side in bed, whatever, they were trying to say that I wasn't in, like the law says, you can go for justifiable homicide if the person was in imminent danger of being raped or losing their life. My imminence... I guess was not imminent for the law. You know, it, they felt like when I well, acted, when I did act, it was the imminence was the whole question. They felt like I wasn't in danger of losing my life, but I couldn't put anybody like in my shoes the way I felt. Like you, you're not, you're a normal person in a very abnormal situation. How did your community and your family react to everything? What happened? They were shocked. It destroyed people. I know it killed my um, parents. My dad was not good to his body. Like he drank and um, he developed diabetes and a heart condition. He died of a um, massive heart attack, even though he had had 
triple bypass surgery. And my mom, after his death, had, you know, never spoke about it, but always had a lump on her breast. And by the time she told me about it, it's been there forever. By the time she, I pushed her to go to a doctor because I wasn't outside with her. She went and it was already cancer and it had metastasized. So all they could do for her is give her chemo and radiation and like buy her extra time on her life. You know, she was stage four at that point. So once you're stage four, you know, she lived like an extra, I think, three and a half years after that. But then after that, your body just becomes immune to the medication. And there was nothing that could be done for her. She ended up passing in 2004. My dad came a couple of times, couldn't deal with it. He just cried. Yeah. But my mom came faithfully. She was up there all the time. My mom was always like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I kept saying it. I knew it. I, I didn't want her hurting for me. That was my thing with my mother. You know, my father was abusive to my mother. Yeah. So. Does your older son still remember... Um, No, when my, when my mom died, he had to go live with my husband's family and they've created these false memories. They brainwashed them, both my kids, but really my older son showing happy home videos and look at what a wonderful dad and how he's smiling. He's so nice. And like they portray him as a gentle giant to sanctify his memory. And so my son doesn't speak to me. My son, he opposed my release at my parole board. He has no recollection of all this because they have reworked his memories. I remember when I would drive home from work, I'd pick up the kids at my mother's house. And as soon as we got in front of our house and my oldest son saw my husband's Jeep in the driveway, he'd scream. He'd like, please take me back to my grandma's. Like in Greek, take me back to Yaya's. I'm scared. Daddy's here. I had to beg this child to come out of the car. So you've probably spent most of their life apart from them. Right. Yeah. Right. How does that make you feel? It's hard. You know, I want to bond with them. I don't want to complicate their lives, but I want, I want to open communications again with them. You know, when you go in and you have a long sentences serve. Long-termers really take you under their wing and kind of, you know, pave the road for you. They let you know what to expect, the do's and don'ts. And if you're facing a lot of time, don't think about the times, just do things, keep busy, like go to school, you know, work and the time will fly. And that's what happened. The time really flew by, you know, just, I went to school, I worked, like I was always busy. I never sat idle. Because when you sit idle with your own thoughts, they'll drive you crazy. So You have a button on your dresser that I noticed. And can you just read what it says? Solitary equals torture. I went to an event. They're trying to get rid of solitary confinement because prisons are um, known for putting, you know, as a sanction, they put you in solitary confinement. And that's like one of the worst things you can do to an individual. People are social beings and they need to interact with others. They should not, especially when they're troubled, you know, maybe let them talk to someone, but prisons are so overwhelmed that they don't ever have anybody that you can talk to. You can't talk to a therapist unless you're on medication. A lot of people just need an outlet. How does it feel? Like I'm talking to you sitting on your bed looking at your perfume collection. (laughs) It feels great. You couldn't have any of this inside. You love florals. You love musks. You like things that are a little bit more sensual. And when most of us think about being incarcerated, 
we think about that all being stripped away from you. So what yeah. was that like feeling it like? Was, it was horrible at first. And then, you know, what we all looked forward to inside was some of the prisons, they had like um, a sale where, you know, we were allowed by the superintendent to order body washes, no sprays, body washes, like good smelling stuff. Or we'd put in on the commissary, like when we wanted stuff like Dove Soap, the body butters from Victoria's Secret. You know, we all looked forward to things like this. And then the the Muslims always had oil sales like once a month. So everybody looked forward to that because you could buy little drams of Muslim oil. You know, of course, and the, the buzz, like what smells good, what's not. Because it, sometimes they just gave you a sheet. You don't know what anything smelled like. So you're blindly guessing and people would be like, get this and get this. And then if you really liked something, the next time the sale came around, you could get like more of it. Sometimes you just walk into um, like, you know, when you're walking into like a, a new admissions area because they have nothing. They're not allowed to order anything for like 30 days. And a lot of people just don't have it, you know, to order. And you could just, its it smells, I don't know, like dirty laundry, dirty socks, and just dead. You always appreciate if uh, officers bring in good smelling stuff to clean their area. Like years ago, I remember our officer used to bring in some, like for her area, she used to have pine soil or they had the Ajax and they got got rid of Ajax. You couldn't use it inside. And they bought some soap ball solutions and they had, they keep, the state keeps trying like new cleansing solutions. You always appreciate a clean scent or you always appreciate like something that's going to remind you of home. Like a, my mom used to use Mr. Clean, like the ammonia. Some people get to a point of depression where they don't want to clean. They don't, they didn't want to clean their room. And a lot of people would get together and try to help them along. The Muslim chaplain, you know, that's on site would allow the girls, like they would order from, I don't know, I guess Medina. Medina in Brooklyn. Love those guys. Yeah. Those are my people. Yeah. <laughs> they would order from Medina the huge bottles and then they'd fill up the little dram bottles. Like they'd take people's orders and then fill them. And Did you ever buy any of those? You no. Know, I liked Oxygen. I liked Body by Victoria. I liked uh, Diesel. I mean, I've tried so many Egyptian mosques. I used to wear Egyptian yeah. mosques. And where did you guys get the money for this family or working? Yeah, family. Or? We worked for DMV. It was what's called an industry pay. It was more than the average state pay. The average state pay is like 25 What'd you do for DMV? Cents an hour. When you call for information on how to get a license or registration or, or whatever, you don't know that you're speaking to an inmate. But as far as accessing the public's personal information, we didn't have access to that. We transferred to civilians and then they looked it up for you. We never had access to internet. I didn't use it for the first time until, you know, I was out. It's a good feeling. Every day is like a new day. You know, it's like, a, I feel like a kid in a candy store every day. You know, Google. Now I love Google. You can Google how to do anything and get your answer. So it's a good feeling. Yeah, I just really love how your entire time you used it productively to study and think about human beings and why they act yeah. the way they act. I always I always felt like I'm strong enough. I could handle it. I could handle it. And before that, it handled me. <laughs> yeah. And now you're here getting your yeah. life back. Yes, yes. And that's a blessing. That's a real blessing.